Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. When women are coming through perimenopause to their primary care doctor or gynecologist, sometimes their symptoms are just being treated or suppressed and not prevented or addressing the underlying causes. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Betty's welcome back to the final mashup of 2022, the best of better, all about menstruation and menopause. Of course, we couldn't have an episode without covering all of the details, idiosyncrasies, things that can go right, things that can go wrong surrounding our fertility and our reproductive cycle. And in this mashup, you are going to hear from the best of the best over the course of 22. So you're going to hear from Cynthia Thurlow, where we talk to her about fasting in perimenopause and menopause and what that's like. We talk about PCOS and fasting with her, uh, Dr. Mindy Pels. So we talk about how stress impacts the perimenopausal woman and how that might begin to also affect her cycle. We talk about postmenopausal weight training collagen use. We talk about teenagers, our beautiful teenage girls and use of the birth control pill and how that alters uh, the cycle. We talk about working out on your cycle. So how that changes over uh, week to week as your hormonal milieu alters. I also pulled some great clips from Dr. Anna Kabeca. We talk about menopausal belief systems, benefits of the ketogenic diet for the woman who is a lived woman who is aging well. Uh, and then we finish off with Lenise Brothers. We talk about painful periods, uh, shame around our periods, the difference between PMS and PMDD, and then what a normal bleed week should look like. And then again, how that changes as we transition into menopause. So with that, I will give you our last best of better 2022. And I also personally just want to thank you, my Betty, my listener who has been, maybe you've found me this year. Maybe you've been listening from the beginning, but I am so grateful for your time. I understand that time is a limited resource and that you choose to spend it 
with me. I can't tell you how honored I am. And I am really excited for the programming for the podcast in January. We are really going to start the year off with a bang. And I hope you have a great holiday season. Merry Christmas. If you celebrate Christmas, happy Hanukkah. If you're celebrating Hanukkah, all the holiday uh, cheer and joy and what it means to be a human in the current modern age. I love you. Thank you. Without further delay, here is the best of better menstruation and menopause edition. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. How does fasting change in perimenopause and then maybe in our menopausal years as well? I think the way we enter perimenopause is a litmus test of how well we're taking care of ourselves. And I couldn't have said that 10 years ago because I didn't know any better, but now I do. And so I think it's really the time we have to level up self-care. It's the time we have to level up taking care of ourselves because if we don't, we will have more 
problems, symptoms transitioning from the five to 10 years preceding menopause, which is what perimenopause is. And so this is when I get really specific about stress management, sleep quality, anti-inflammatory nutrition. I get very specific about types of exercise um, because if we optimize those things and if we lean into where we are in our cycle, we are going to do much better. And then the eating less often piece can oftentimes be like the missing link. Cause I had done all the other things. It was the eating less often piece was the last thing in perimenopause that made the biggest difference. So I think when we start to understand what's happening in our bodies in terms of sleep, um, as our ovaries are producing less progesterone heading into perimenopause, this may manifest as anxiety and depression. It can manifest as sleep disturbances. Um, we have to ratchet in on that. And it doesn't necessarily mean that every person has to take medication, um, but it could be that it may be that you lean into specific types of foods that you um, have to have a better sleep hygiene. Like I think about sleep when I get up in the morning, like I'm already preparing my body. Um, maybe it's re removing inflammatory foods. And I'm sure your listeners know that those are things like gluten and grains and dairy, depending on who you are, it could be alcohol. Alcohol seems to be one of those like big elusive things that we know in perimenopause can really dysregulate melatonin secretion, increase cortisol. It can impact sleep quality, um, can ultimately impact blood sugar. And Lord knows when I used to drink alcohol, which I don't anymore, um, and I never had a problem. I just gave it up because it impacted my sleep so negatively. I never made good food choices. It was unfortunate, but it was like, I wouldn't crave the really good food. I'd end up craving the stuff I shouldn't be eating. And then thinking about timing of your exercise for where you are in your cycle. And hopefully in the beginning of perimenopause, your cycles are still pretty regular. So you're able to determine like where that follicular phase is, where the luteal phase is, um, you know, leaning into acknowledging that there are certain times during the month when we can push the lever on fasting and times when we should back off on it. And so I find for many women, if they're, they're tuned into those key areas, that, that that period before they go into menopause, 12 months without a menstrual cycle, is pretty benign. Um, those are women that have better balanced blood sugar, their ins fasting insulin levels are lower, their inflammatory markers are lower, they maintain a healthy weight, they don't have hot flashes. Like I think hot flashes are, and based on research and everything I've read, hot flashes are more often a reflection of blood sugar dysregulation. I think people think about it so much, oh, it's all related to estrogen. And I, I tell people that um, that's always like a sign that something is off. And that was one reason why I stopped drinking alcohol. I would get hot flashes. It was like the only time I would get a hot flash and it was so uncomfortable, even though mine were pretty benign. I was like, goodness, between the sleep and the blood sugar and the blood sugar dysregulation related to the alcohol use. I'm like, I can just have my mocktail and, you know, go to parties and just be totally fine. So I think again, perimenopause is a litmus test for how well we're taking care of ourselves. And especially for women with small children, with children in general, with significant other spouses, we have a tendency to give to everyone and then worry about ourselves last. And this is a time if you really want to have a healthy, happy middle age time period, it's really a time to be reflecting on what you're doing well and to be honest enough with yourself to say, what is no longer serving me and either replacing it or finding alternatives if it's something that you really enjoy. I'll give you an example. I mean, I was, I've been gluten-free for over 10 years and that put a, an autoimmune issue into remission. But one of the things I, I had to give up because it kept me so inflamed was dairy. And 
it was a hard decision. I didn't realize how much I liked dairy and how much dairy was a part of my lifestyle until I removed it. And once it was removed, I mean, that perimenopause weight that I could not get rid of went completely away. And it just goes to show you even like sporadic use of an inflammatory food for your body can have an enormous impact on weight you're carrying on, you're hanging on to. And so for me, I was delighted. My, my family was like shocked, but I just said, if this is what it takes for me to be healthier, because I could tell I was inflamed because I would sometimes get like ankle pain or foot pain. And so taking dairy out of my diet, but it can get more nuanced than that. I, I find some women have to remove, you know, some of the plant-based compounds like oxalates and saponins and um, you know, other things, but, but I think, or lectins, but for that matter, it's really determining for you, what do you need to do to help keep your, you know, your, your cortisol balance to keep your, your sanity. And the last thing I want to add to that, you know, you are on this incredible platform talking a lot about physical activity and strength training. And so for me, the days of doing like really hardcore conditioning, like almost CrossFit S types of workouts were gone. They completely messed with my sleep and did not serve me. I could go lift heavy and I would do fine and I could do hit in short amounts and I could walk, but I had to honor and I just do more yoga, <laughs> more yin yoga, um, really honoring where I was that those really hard, I'm going to pick on orange theory fitness, but there are women that are doing that five or six days a week. And they're like, I don't understand why I can't lose weight. And I was like, well, it used to serve us in our twenties and thirties does not serve us if we're working at that intensely four or five days a week and wondering why we can't lose weight. And again, it's talking about the cortisol. Cortisol goes up because it thinks you're running a marathon every day. You're going to really struggle. So that's kind of been my, you know, end of a couple thousand, you know, working with women at that stage of life, like the people that do the best navigating into menopause are the ones that dial in and find appropriately way, appropriate ways to challenge yourself but not do it in a way that you are overtaxing your adrenals, overtaxing cortisol, dysregulating your sex hormones worse than they already are. As we kind of make that transition where we have less circulating progesterone, a bit more estrogen dominance for most people, maybe faltering testosterone levels, which all impact, you know, every way, every way that we perceive our lives. I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, I, I have, uh, I wear a couple of wearables. I have aura and I have the whoop that I wear and anytime I have a glass of wine and it's not, we're not talking about a lot of wine. Like I'm a lightweight when it comes to <laughs> like one glass is like, I will nurse that all night. But if mm -hmm. I, if I have that one glass, like my body temperature goes up, like the next day, my aura is like, what's happened? What, what did you do? You know, like my body temperature goes up, my resting heart rate goes up, my respiratory rate goes up, my HRV, my heart rate variability goes down, which is, you know, not good. You want your HRV to be as high as you possibly can. Being my HRV just is already like just low to begin with. Like I, I struggle uh, to actually have good HRV, we'll call it that. Like I sort of go between 20, like if I get 40 on my HRV, like I'm doing really well. And I don't know if that's like a genetic component past stress and trauma that ha is still living in my nervous system or what, but alcohol is such a big thing. It's such, and for, and I think, you know, with the pandemic, with the past two years, and you have just, even before that, I would counsel women who were like, I just have a glass or two with my husband in the evening to wind down from the day. And it actually does 
at least from what the data suggests, the opposite of helping you wind down. You know, you may fall asleep faster, but it's not sleep. It's not the sleep that we're actually after. You're just unconscious. You know, you're not getting the, um, well, I find that my deep sleep is not really changed, but like everything else, like my REM sleep, my light sleep, uh, my non-REM sleep is all uh, terrible. And that's something yeah. that uh, is hard to hear uh, for someone who might be drinking one or two glasses of e- wine in the evening to, to wind down. But sleep, as you were saying, is not something you can bottle. You know, it's the, yeah. it's the one thing you can't, you know, you, you have to get good sleep. And that's sort of the precursor to the energy that we were talking about, the hormonal fluctuations that we were talking about. And then when it's like, it's just liquid sugar. So kind of back to what we were talking about with insulin, you know, you're going to jack up your insulin, which is going to uh, kind of give you that type of hyper and like that, you know, higher androgens and or higher estrogens um, as well. Let's start by maybe pre-framing and even going a little bit, uh, uh, you know, before we jump into menopause, let's talk a little bit about perimenopause. Mm -hmm. Um, And what are some of the, you know, I'm in perimenopause right now. I'm like, I'm in the double fours right now. I'm 44. Um, And so um, I don't, I don't, I haven't experienced, like, of course I've studied it. I've helped, you know, lots of clients with it. And I think that I've done a a relatively good job at, uh, preventing some of the common symptoms that we might see occur or that we might have our patients uh, complain about in menopause. And I think that we can talk about this from a hormonal perspective, but you said something really interesting that I thought we might start uh, with the mental and cognitive uh, first with the schema that we have, like the belief system that we have around what perimenopause and or menopause might be. Right. And then we can maybe talk about some of the brain changes, cognitive changes, and then the, how those might then begin to influence us skipping the workout or snacking on, you know, whatever, cheesecake or having extra wine or whatever to placate our emotions in the evening. So let's talk a little bit. Let's start with, uh, you know, sort of the brain and the mind, if you will. Yeah. And you had to mention wine. I'm in the middle of Lent and I gave up wine. So I'm whining, no wine. But, you know, it does it does also make a difference, certainly, especially as we get older. You said something really I want to emphasize. You said helping, and this makes you different than many other doctors, helping helping your clients prevent the symptoms, right? Versus I'm treating the symptoms. Right. This is completely the by design, the way it has to be done. Because when women are coming through perimenopause to their primary care doctor or gynecologist, sometimes their symptoms are just being treated or suppressed and not prevented or addressing the underlying causes. And so often they get a birth control pill and they get um, an SSRI, and then they get a endometrial ablation or a hysterectomy. And then I will say, then after that, you've given the antidepressant, you've given the birth control, now you've removed the uterus and ovaries since they're over age 35, what do they need them for anyway? And before you know it, they're getting a referral to psychiatry and a divorce attorney. I mean, that's so true, it's very sad. And I was sitting at a beautiful table of, amazing professional women on uh, last last week for lunch at an exclusive club here in Dallas. And they, you know, had all hormone questions, right? They're like, oh my gosh. So they were asking all hormone questions. And three of the uh, 12 women at the table were on birth control pills and they were after older than 50. Everyone pretty much at the table was o- older than 50. I've always found that crazy. It How is, is a 50 year old on birth control pill? 
It's and and not for birth control, right? And right. not for birth control, right? right. For right. hormone, that's the that's the treatment of the symptoms, right? Mm-hmm. That's the suppression of the symptoms. We'll come in after, and then, you know, we've got our next best option. Versus, well, let's empower your body so you're not symptomatic through this transition, and let's not give you an additional endocrine disruptors such as the synthetic progestins that are in every single one of those birth control pills. Sadly. And let's, you know, prevent you from experiencing these symptoms. And until I went through it, I mean, I wouldn't have known the severity. And again, that's my specialty. I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and the prime years of my life studying hormones, hormone cascade, gynecology, reproductive endocrinology, and the list goes on. But to find out that above those hormones, those most important hormones you mentioned at the beginning, you know, our cortisol, our insulin, and the most important hormone of our entire body and our lives, oxytocin. And so, so in understanding this, getting to those treatments, well, what is happening with our, you know, what's happening with our physiology in our mid third, in, in our twenties to late twenties, we're our DHEA, that's a precursor to estrogen testosterone is also starting to decline. And then progesterone, our mother hormone in our mid thirties is really declining and it declines quite rapidly and add in 35, so 35 to 55, sharp decrease loss of maybe like 55%, 65% of total uh, production of progesterone during those years and, um, and add in some healthy stress further plummeting, emptying that progesterone bucket, and you really have a decline in the the estrogen and testosterone. But, and understanding that that's happening and that enters this period, you know, we've called it estrogen dominance, but really neuroendocrine vulnerability. I mean, I've got to find a better name, but it's affecting our, our brain and our hormones, our brain and our body, our nervous system and our reproductive hormones. And so this transition happening is is creating a shift in how we think, how we sleep, how we move when it's not optimized, when it's not optimized. So by design, and this is where I really discovered when I was in like 48 years old, around 48, this time period, 46 to 48, I was just plummeting. And I had the post-traumatic stress still under the surface. And that was an issue too. And I had brain fog, mood swings, irritability. And of course, cycle was basically non-existent at that point. And I gained 20 pounds without doing anything different. And that's where, when my patients would say that to me, Stephanie, I'd be like, "Uh, sure, you're not doing anything different. How is that possible? Oh my gosh, you guys, it's, it's possible. And, and my hormones, my bioidentical hormones were dialed in on the labs. My thyroid was good. My hormones were good. I mean, optimal. And so, okay, so what else is going on here? And that dug me into, you know, really um, the ketogenic diet and the ketogenic lifestyle. Cause I was like well over 240 pounds at one point, gaining 20 pounds, what felt like overnight without doing anything different. When would the scale stop? So I strictly reduced my carbs and very quickly it didn't feel good. And I'm very familiar with ketogenic diets and low carb diets. Cause I treat patients with um, candida, you know, with chronic yeast infections and seizure disorders, neurologic conditions with keto 
know, and I have a daughter with seizures. So very familiar with the ketogenic lifestyle. But then I started feeling like I hit a wall and I call it, you know, keto crazy, keto cranky, keto crazy. It just didn't feel good. And then I recalled some, many of my patients in the perimenopause, menopause time period, when I put them on this type of regimen, they said, you know, Dr. Ann, I just don't feel good. And, and that's what dug me, that's where I really dug into understanding, okay, what's happening physiologically, what's going on here? And checking urine pH, I was as acidic as the urine pH paper read. And for me, that was the aha moment that in order to do a keto healthfully as women, we needed to add in the greens and the alkalinizers. I feel like um, you, as you get older, as you go through the perimenopausal years and those ovaries are starting to switch, shut down and switch the job of making sex hormones over to the adrenal glands, we have another challenge, which is if you're pushing it too hard, you're double stacking stress on the adrenals and now all the hormones go away. And, and that is something that I absolutely dealt with throughout all my 40s. I mean, I kept modifying and modifying and modifying my workouts because I was watching these hormones change. And if I didn't change my workout with them, the injuries kept piling on top of each other. I, I love that you brought this up because I think that this is such a big consideration in, you know, f oftentimes in our thirties, twenties and thirties, it's about child rearing and marriage. And then in our forties and fifties, like those children are getting older our you know, they're, they're teenagers, which is a whole set of different challenges that you, <laughs> as a Amen. parent that you have Amen to, you know, to sort of you go through. And then you also have other stressors like aging parents, let's say, oh, or fat, so like true. death of, you know, important people in your life that starts to happen, unfortunately with more and more frequency. Um, so it is, to your point, very important to be paying attention to stress management in your 40s and 50s, because as you said, the ovaries are like, I'm done. I've been here working hard like a maniac. Yep. I'm ready to retire. <laughs> I'm going to hand over my job description and my, you know, my, my, all my duties over to the adrenals who are now going to be tasked with making, you know, making the, the majority of our sex hormones going forward. So if you already have sort of a higher sympathetic load, let's say, uh, you are going to be at a, we'll say, um, you know, a disadvantage. Uh, versus someone who is is managing their stress really well. So there's a couple right. of a couple of strategies that we might talk about around how you might how you might mitigate some of that stress. First would be from a nutritional perspective. One and there, this was a question like, is a refeed day important? Mm, and this yeah. is actually a really beautiful time. Like if you are getting injured and it's not getting better, and you're like oh my God, I'm going to kill everybody. Like I'm moody. I'm anxious. My performance in the gym is starting to tank my energy, my sleep, my libido, it may be time for a refeed and a refeed day. Uh, what we mean by that, there's a couple of different definitions. So if you are doing kind of like a low carb ish diet, a refeed can either be a, uh, uh, like a carbo like a keto refeed, meaning that you, you don't change the macros. You just eat more of everything. So it's more of like a caloric mm. bump, mm. or you can do a carbohydrate refeed. Yeah. So you completely switch over the macros. Whereas before you might've been doing much more low carbs, much higher fat, that kind of thing. You switch it over to, I prefer to do like a high protein, high carbohydrate refeed. And mm. that tends to help a lot with the sleep, especially if you backload it 
in, in later in the day. Yep. So if you have a lot of the carbohydrates, let's say most of your carbohydrates towards the end of your day, uh, that tends to, you know, elicit the serotonin production, which helps you feel sleepy. And then you're giving your adrenals enough, uh, substrate, uh, to be able to kind of last the night, because one mm-hmm. of the things I, I, I hear this all the time, I would love to know if this is the same for you, uh, Mindy, is that women will say, I wake up all the time between like, like I wake up in a shock between like one and four in the morning. Like that's yep. the time when they wake up. And usually what that means is that the adrenals have kind of run out of fuel, right? Mm. So we have this stress response, this sort of sympathetic response response where we have adrenaline and cortisol and all these other things, noradrenaline, blah, 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 kind of increasing in their concentration, which brings us out of our sleep prematurely. So you can help by having a bit more carbohydrates. So in, you know, to the question about is a refeed day important? You're, you know, you want to answer the question, do I, am I seeing any dips in my performance at the gym? If yes, maybe it's warrant, we warrant mm. a refeed day. Well said. Dips in non-scale uh, you know, I call them non-scale victories. So like, is your energy dipping, sleep dipping, libido dipping? You know, you feel like you're stressed, like you're waking up in the middle of the night. You can't initiate and or maintain sleep. A carb, a, a refeed might be warranted there as well. Yeah. Yeah. I would say I also strongly like it patterned to your hormonal cycle, to your menstrual cycle. And um, I've, you know, we've talked a lot about the week before your period and how important you're more insulin resistant. There's a reason for that. Your body wants glucose to be higher. You you definitely don't want to be doing fasting and keto during that week. Correct. And a lot of women who get obsessed with fasting and keto forget that or they don't know that. And then that's where we got a problem. But the other part that I've been really playing with is during ovulation, because I'm seeing in the women that I'm working with that a lot of times we need more carbs then. And when we add in more carbs during ovulation, that ovulation goes a lot smoother. And for all the women out there that are like, but you know, when do I use keto and fasting to lose weight? You can use it in week one and you can use it in week three. But But the thing about ovulation is that you definitely, when you up your carbs, if you are going into ketosis during that time, which I'm seeing a lot of women do, they up their carbs and they wake up in ketosis. That is their body saying, hey, you need to give me more carbs during this time. So I feel like we can use blood sugar, we can use ketones and map that and know ourselves. And if you go into ketosis on a higher carb diet during ovulation, that's what your body is telling you, your hormones are telling you, you need. Well said. I could not agree more because one of the things, of course, that we know is that the... um, you know, if you are too aggressive, let's say in your, um, uh, fasting or keto or whatever in that week, your mitochondria in your ovaries are going to be like, we can't, she can't get pregnant right now. There's not enough right. food. So we're just going to hold off on this, this egg and we'll just wait and see next month. So there's, if you're too aggressive with the fasting, too aggressive with the keto, let's say in, in week two, you can absolutely impact ovulation. So I do, I, I, I really appreciate what you're saying because I think that there's, uh, and I used to do this too. So I'm not poo-pooing on anyone. Like I, this has been my own journey too. I used to white knuckle my way through yep. the whole cycle. It's like, yep, I have to do too. it this way because this is how I'm supposed to do it. This is what the guys are doing. And this is yep. what I got to do. And I think that there's such a freedom in, in saying, okay, like 
I'm just going to give myself more carbohydrates to make ovulation a pleasant experience because there yes. are a lot of people who have that middle smirch. They have that pain in the middle of the cycle or they become anovulatory. They skip it because they don't have enough carbohydrates to drive the process of the follicular and egg development. Yeah. Yeah. A thousand percent. And I think, you know, the, for the women listening, there can be this moment of, but wait, what am I supposed to do? There's a lot of theories getting thrown out here, but this is the point is the more you engage in conversations like this, the more you understand where the hormones are coming in and out. And then you play with these principles, the whole goal for every human on the planet, but especially women is we have to be our own N of one. We have to experiment on ourselves. And this is why you grab a CGM, grab a measure your ketones, know what those patterns are throughout the, the menstrual cycle. And then you'll know where you need to refeed. Cause I have watched more women who have white knuckled to your point themselves through the whole cycle using keto and fasting, and they're not getting the ketone numbers that they want. And then we throw in a, a, what I call nature's carbs, where we just throw in a high carb day and all of a sudden they go into ketosis and they're like, what? Why did that happen? Right. So we, there is a lot more ebb and flow for sure. So I guess my next question is, are periods supposed to be painful? And can we, how can we begin to educate our mothers and our beautiful daughters, right? So when they get to that point of going to the doctor, that they don't misinterpret their experience. It's so interesting that, you asked this question because we we do kind of absorb through the co cultural conversation that periods are supposed to be painful. And then when you have someone like me, someone like you saying, well, actually, they're not supposed to be painful, maybe some light cramping, maybe some like twinges, you know, but you're not supposed to be downing painkillers your whole your whole period. That's not normal. But when you have someone saying that people get upset because they we've been taught that periods are supposed to be a time where we're incapacitated, we're uh, we're angry, we're moody, we're full of rage, we're bloated, you know, what whatever symptom it is, you name it, that's what we're supposed to be experiencing. And then when we flip it on its head and say, well, actually, you know, you can be fine during your, during your period. You might be a little tired. You might be a little bit more inward looking, but it doesn't have to be a, a chaotic time. People find that really challenging because it's these stories that we learn. And then we start to repeat these stories. And then repeat them down to our daughters, our cousins, our nieces, you know, even, even like the male members of a family, it's like, oh, she's on her period. Yes. You know, oh, she's, you know, she's going to be upset. I better, you know, I'm going to be walking on eggshells. And, you know, these stories are really powerful and we need to rewrite these stories because it just doesn't have to be this way. Periods are not supposed to be painful. I love what you just said about the male component to it, because yes, we certainly, we get the stories from our girlfriends and uninformed teachers and our peers and maybe our mothers, but you also have that 
story. Oh, she's on the, you know, insert derogatory term here, right? Like she's on the rag. She's, you know, she's ragging now she's, you know, she has her period and, um, you know, or, or, you know, other, other sort of derogatory, let's say, uh, classifications of what it means to be a menstruating woman. And kind of digging deeper uh, in your book, I really liked the, your, uh, the book is called You Can Have a Better Period. Uh, you started off with some stats, which I thought we might double click and expand on a little bit, uh, just around this topic of culture and menstruation. And I'll just read some facts um, from your book here. 97% of women hid their period products. So let's say they were in school and, you know, they, t- and I've, d- I did like, I do this, you know, like you tuck the little tampon in your back pocket or the pad or whatever, um, because they thought that that was the normal thing to do. That if anybody else maybe knew that they were menstruating, like they were in their bleed week, that that would be, you know, super embarrassing. And I remember feeling that way as well. 76% uh, felt embarrassed and 56% felt shame around their menstrual cycle, particularly in their bleed week. I think that those numbers are incredible. I, and I think it's, it speaks to, you know, why we're sort of scurrying about making sure that nobody knows that we're on our period, trying to pretend, right? Like nothing's wrong. Oh, do you don't have to walk around eggshells around me? Like I'm fine. You know, like I uh, strong, like bull, you know, like I like to sort of <laughs> channel my inner Russian, you know, woman and be like, you know, I, no, I can deal with it. Like, I don't need to, you know, I don't need to do anything. And I, and I think that there's not an allowance. As you said, maybe you're a little weepier. Maybe you're a little more lethargic. We feel some cramping in the uterus. That's absolutely normal and expected, Mm. but that doesn't mean that the whole world is, you you shouldn't be, you know, you shouldn't be uh, not able to engage in your activities of daily living, like Mm. interacting with people, going to work, being able to exercise. And we'll talk about modifying exercises today too. But what, what, when you were doing research for this book, what was your first initial thoughts when you were coming across this data? I want to say that I was surprised, but I wasn't. It just verified all of the the thinking that I had been doing. And it actually made me happy that I was able to introduce this new narrative or continue this new narrative that is starting to emerge around menstrual health. Because, you know, we don't, we don't need to feel shame around our periods. And it makes me feel really sad that we get taught that, you know, menstrual, the menstrual blood is dirty or it's disgusting. And it's something that we need to hide. Um, You know, we get taught that even our bodies, they're kind of like a bit unwieldy during our period, all of these messages that we get taught and the, the survey that you mentioned, I found it so fascinating because because it was it was actual data to back up what I had already been seeing anecdotally. Um, what's really interesting is that there's this new survey that came out recently where um, 2,000 British women between the ages of 18 to 50, they were surveyed and 85% of them wanted to know more about their menstrual cycle and about their period. They didn't feel like they were taught enough in school. So there's this shame narrative, but equally what I find really compelling is that there's also this desire to learn more. And you were kind of seeing that if you look on social media and actually on TikTok, which I find fascinating, there's this, if you go onto TikTok and you search hashtag period talk, 
there's just an explosion of content. And I think last week um, there was some research done that and found that a lot of British teenagers and um, women in their 20s were getting a lot of their education on menstrual health from TikTok. And, you know, we can have a conversation about the credibility of some of that information. But I think what's really powerful is that we're starting to reverse these narratives and people are starting to seek actively seek out information and change their thinking around their menstrual health. I love that. And in your book, you also talk about how, you know, more, we'll say ancient civilizations, ancient Rome, ancient Greece, the Apaches, the Hindus uh, in India, they had all of these beautiful rituals around a menstruating woman. And I think that there's, you know, a tide, if you'll excuse or, in, or accept my pun, yeah. uh, there's maybe a crimson tide uh, of a, <laughs> a return back to honoring and having reverence for what it is that, uh, uh, we as women um, are able to produce, right? Yeah. We're, every month, right? I can say this, you know, talk about this in the book and I'm sure we're, we're going to get into it now too. We create an organ, like how freaking crazy and how amazing is that? Yeah. So I would say for the woman in her menstrual, you know, her reproductive years, my over, like the overarching comment that you'll hear from me is that you should always be lifting heavy weights all mm -hmm. through the cycle. Okay. Mm -hmm. But it's just how you structure the workout that's going to change based on the hormonal composition that you are experiencing that week. So as a general, you know, kind of back of the envelope, let's say review, when you're in your bleed week, first half of the week, estrogen's very low, progesterone's not around. The only hormone that's kind of really working hard is something called follicular stimulating hormone, which is as it, as the name suggests, is there to stimulate the follicle because that's the whole point of the follicular phase is to have one follicle that's chosen that's going to develop the egg within it. Mm -hmm. So in the first uh, we'll say, let's say you start bleeding, you know, day one, day two, some women get a little crampy. There's, you know, there's a little lethargy there. I, I'm like that too. So the first kind of day that I get my period, I can feel like those uterine contractions, you know, expel, you know, trying to expel, uh, you know, expel the, um, the endometrial lining. So I tend to take it a little easier, right? For, mm -hmm. for me, I tend to just do a lot of walking because I find that just that beautiful, you know, walking, when you think about what's happening, mechanistically in the hips, of course, you're getting that beautiful figure eight in the sacrum. You're, you're lubricating the joints in the hip and the low back and the knees, which often a lot of women will complain about. So mm -hmm. I try to get, um, you know, if I'm taking a day off of weights, I'll try to get in something like 10 to 15,000 steps, like long walks, gentle, slow movement. Some women are like, let's have at it. So, mm -hmm. you know, you, there's a lot of bio-individuality there. I just like to be a little easier on day one. Um, but kind of day two, day three, I'm right back at it. So it's heavy weights, but the rep range is what I would classify as moderate. So somewhere mm. between eight and 12 uh, reps. So let's say you're doing, you know, let's say a squat. Okay. Just for ease of, or a lunge or something, you're going to do maybe eight repetitions you know, three to four sets of that exercise before moving on. And maybe you're combining into supersets or giant sets or whatever, but typically eight repetitions per group, eight to 12 repetitions per, per exercise is where I find is, is, 
you know, you have the least likelihood of injury. It's kind of what you're able to do and punch out really easily that week. Um, when we move into week two, of course, towards the end of week one, and then kind of at the beginning of week two, we see this really big rise in estradiol, right? This is this big, like estrogen, of course, anabolic hormone, all about growth. Um, and it's trying to really push that follicular, like, so there can be that one follicle that's really developing. Um, this is a week where I like to, um, lift heavier. So, uh, Mm. and I'll also say the other hormonal, the other hormone to consider this week is, um, is testosterone. Testosterone peaks this week as well. So I love still again, lifting heavy, but if the weight is heavier, that means that my set, like the amount of repetitions I'm going to punch out is going to be less. Right. So Mm. let's say on the squat, just for an example, uh, 50, like let's say I did 50 pounds on the squat in week one. Well, if now I'm only doing five repetitions, I could do my number can be higher than 50. So maybe I'll try 60 or 65, let's say, but I'm only going to be doing five to seven reps of it. So I really, really love a high, high weight, low rep count in this week. In terms of cardio, your question around cardio, I think was well, uh, well placed here as well. This is a week where I tend to counsel women away from burst training. And Mm. it's it's precisely because of the estradiol surge. Estrogen, as you know, uh, you know, creates ligamentous laxity. So in the ligaments, let's say in the shoulders, in the knee, in the ankles, in the wrist, like everywhere, spinal, you know, all the spinal stabilizing ligaments, they tend to be a little bit more, we'll say loosey goosey than they are any other time in the cycle because you have this really sharp change, uh, the sharp concentration in estrogen in the body. So there is a higher incidence of, or, or, or propensity for, uh, for injury, um, when you're doing things like sprinting or hit training or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, any type of explosive, like jumping squats, things like that. So I typically will say you can still do the cardio if you, you know, if that's your goal, but I like to, I like to change the type of cardio in this week only. So this is where we might bring it down to like a low intensity, steady state. So that's like, if you're, if you're a runner, that just might be like a flat hill jog, right? Or if you're on an elliptical, it's like the same tension, let's say all the way through on your 30 or 40 or whatever, you know, minute, um, cardio activity that you're doing. Um, and then all the other weeks really, uh, there's no, um, there's, you know, there's no limitation in terms of hit. It's just in that second week, mm-hmm. um, because we have this really, really big change, um, mm-hmm. in estrogen do, concentration. Yeah. Do you think one thing I've thought about with ovulation is it, this is really the time that we're going to get a massive surge of testosterone. Like this is our, our, t- our testosterone's like glory moment is in that ovulation window. So do you feel like when testosterone's on the scene, our ability to build muscle is going to be enhanced or is it going to be more that our craving to build muscle is going to be more enhanced? That's a really good question. I think with the testosterone and estrogen peaking, what we know is that those are very stimulatory to the motor cortex in the brain. So in some ways, we're like firing on all cylinders, right? So Mm -hmm. the motor cortex is more activated. So of course, the motor cortex in the brain, uh, for those of you that are maybe unaware, this is the... um, 
This is the area in the brain that controls movement. Mm -hmm. So you are going to be very well primed to be lifting heavy in this week because of the brain activation, let's say under the influence of testosterone and estrogen. And to your question around, can you build more muscle because testosterone is surging? I think that there is some truth to that. So, at, you know, one of the things that we want to do is we want to, in, in you know many other areas in, in our lives, we want to get out of vicious circles. But this is a yes. this is a circle that we kind of want to get into, where it's like the well heavier said. you, yeah, the heavier that you lift, the more testosterone is going to be produced as an indirect consequence of be, having to maintain that muscle. Yep. So, I think that the mechanical stimulus of lifting heavy all through the cycle is justified. But in particular this week, because you have that spike in testosterone, your may potentially your capacity under the influence of having that motor cortex activation for new mo muscle patterns or heavier or, or a heavier load is going to be augmented. And uh, you have the energy, right? You're going to have right. sort of the energy to put towards yeah. doing a, a much more vigorous or rigorous uh, a workout. So I think that there is some truth to what you're saying in terms of because we see testosterone spiking, we can actually go harder at the gym because of the influence that it has in maintaining muscle mass. Yeah. And one thought I've had, and I've talked to several trainers about this, is that when we look at exercise, we typically look at it in a weekly way, like yeah. you can do three, three days a week of this, one day a week of that. And when you start to look at our hormones, I think women should be looking at this in a monthly basis. And when I look at that five day period, there's a part of my hormonal brain that says, well, what if one day you go in and you do uh, biceps and then the next and you go hard, like heavy weights, low reps to your point. The next day you do a bunch of squats. So you're going to really work on glutes and 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 your um your quads. Next day, you're going to go in on pecs. So you could take that five days and really chunk it down into specific body groups and really target them with heavy weights. It, it's just a thought I've had. Um, I, this is where I wish I had a regular cycle again. I'm like, I want my cycle I would love back. to experiment with that. Yes. <laughs> yes. I love you. Yeah. So as a cycling woman, I mean, what do you think of that? I think that we want to be trying to, uh, to your point, I think that we want to be trying to hit uh, different muscle groups several times a week. So I do like after there's been, you know, after we've established like a foundational, you know, let's call it foundation of strength in, in an individual, in a woman. So, you know, if there, I know there's a question in, in our, uh, you know, that came in, it's like, I'm 55 and I want to start lifting weights. Well, the first thing is we're not going to give you kettlebells and, and barbells. No. We're going to, no. you know, you're going to go to the machines and you're yes. going to learn the pattern of, of movement. So once we have a foundational kind of nerve neuromusculoskeletal basis of strength. You have that connection from the brain to the body and the body to the brain. Um, then we can start playing around with what you're talking about, which is like hitting muscle groups several times a week. And it looks like the research shows that as long as you get to close to muscle fatigue, so it actually doesn't, you know, when, when I was in school, it was like, you have to lift heavy and that's the only way that you're going to build muscle. And that's not necessarily true. So that's why mm. I love the manipulation of these sets over the course of the cycle, because as long as you get close to muscle fatigue or muscle mm. failure, whether that is 15 reps at a lighter rate or five 
reps at a heavier weight, you are going to be able to contribute to muscle hypertrophy. And this is, uh, I'm going to say his name wrong, but it's Brad Schoenfield um, is the researcher that has really kind of brought this about, as well as this idea of getting to 10 sets per muscle group per week as a, as a means for hypertrophy. So if you like, let's say in that five days, let's say, let's say you trained four, uh, you know, times it's like two upper body, two lower body. Well, you'd want to make sure that you've, you've had at least 10 sets of over the course of those two training days, 10 sets of squats, right? So you Mm. want to, or, or, you know, let's say it's glutes that you're trying to build. So it might be a squats, lunges, hip thrusters, you know, uh, Bulgarian split squats, whatever. So you want to make sure that you're hitting that muscle group at least 10 times, uh, in a, in about a week period. So, you know, to your point around five days, uh, in order to kind of hit that point of, of building the muscle, building the muscle up and having hypertrophy there. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna it's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. So you could do... Uh like squats, you could go after legs on a Monday and let's say you're on day 10 of ovulation or day 11 um, of your cycle. You could do legs on Monday and then on Wednesday, you come back to legs and and glutes again with with same kind of concept. Let's go in strong with heavy weights during this time. But to your point, because estrogen is still very, very present during ovulation, we would want to go slow. We wouldn't want to do a lot of burst activity. Maybe not uh, kettlebells, uh, you know, always scare my my brain a little bit just because they can be so much swinging movement that can hurt discs and tendons, but I understand that they can also be great muscle builders. So you would want to do those movements slower because of estrogen being in there, but heavier because maybe you have testosterone and then alternate every other day, that same muscle group. Would you think that would be a really good way to go after ovulation? Yeah, I do. And the other the other thing that I wanted to mention around estrogen's impact is on the tendon, it makes it stiffer. So we're okay. actually so it makes the ligaments a bit more lax, but the tendons get stiffer. So you're actually very well suited to lift heavy. The you know, to your point around the kettlebells and like the swinging, I think that there's a lot of particularly when it comes to hamstring work, like deadlifts and let's say even kettlebell swings, there's a lot of, I mean, there's some glutes and stuff in there as well, but you know, the, the hamstrings are our big primary movers there. I, I find that a lot of, I would say people in general, but women, because we talk to women and our clients are women. And my observation has been about women don't activate their hamstrings well. So Mm. even on like deadlifts, let's say like whether it's a trap bar deadlift, sumo deadlift, like it doesn't matter the type of deadlift. What I find is that there's a lot of, um, 
we'll call it, I don't know if this is the right term, but like escape through the back. Like you'll see Mm. people initiating the movement through the lumbar spine, right? And I don't know if you've ever seen this in in clinic. We used to always test people. I'm like, show me your squat. And it's like, you know, like people will get their chest on their knees, but their hips haven't moved. And it's like, this is not a squat. This is just like a flexion of the, like 100% flexion of the hips. So I think that there's something to be said around and I was actually just having a conversation about this earlier today around like pre uh, maybe prehab is the right word or like mm. an activation circuit before you start lifting. Like everyone wants to get to the glamour muscles. Everyone wants to start lifting. But can we maybe think about how we're going to activate, let's say, the hamstrings, like the posterior chain, if you're doing like this, maybe you do squats and lunges and stuff on day one and then you come back to it on day three and it's a lot of hamstring work, deadlifts, that kind of thing. Um, but really thinking about creating that neural connection because you're right sometimes in the gym you watch people and you're like oh no oh, that that painful. disc is going to blow if you keep doing <laughs> yeah. that and you keep yeah. adding weights to that to that those plates like the yeah. amount of you know in when we look at um neurologically if let's say i were to shine a if someone's had a concussion let's say and we shine a light in the eye and like the eye, what the, what, what's supposed to happen is you're supposed to have a contraction of the pupil and it's supposed to stay contracted. But if someone who's had a concussion, what we see is something called sympathetic escape, right? So we see the parasympathetic contraction of the pupil. And then because the sympathetics are so activated, the pupil just blows out again. So mm-hmm. I don't know if this is the right term, but I'm using escape kind of in an, in an analogous way where sometimes I'll see someone initiating a deadlift from their low back when it's like, your butt isn't low enough and you're Mm. not thinking about your hamstrings. You're just thinking, okay, I got eight to do. Let me just go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. You know, it's like stop lifting from your low back, get your butt down, straighten out and learn to learn how to stabilize the spine and Mm. then initiate the movement. And that if so, if we tie that into what I heard in that is improper movement with you as you're doing your kettlebells or you're doing your workouts, do you feel like in the cycle that lack of attention to detail around how you're actually doing that exercise, you're going to be more prone to injury at ovulation because of estrogen causing those tight tendons? Yeah, I think that I think that if there's a time in the cycle where you're maybe more prone to injury, it's probably going to be in the luteal phase of the cycle because the motor cortex is not as excitable. Mm. So this would be and that doesn't mean, ladies, that you shouldn't train in the second half of your cycle. Do not take that as the conclusion of the statement. But if you are doing a new program let's say the luteal phase is not the ideal time to start it, you know, because your motor cortex is not as activated. That doesn't mean that you can't do movement patterns that you've already primed the neuromusculoskeletal system to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But starting a new program in the luteal phase is less than optimal. Yeah. 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 And you don't want to bring cortisol in in the luteal phase either. You don't want a lot of that. So otherwise you're going to tank progesterone, which we see in, I mean, as a athletic woman, I mean, I was in my twenties, I was a competitive tennis player and the amount of stress and strain that I went through training and many of the women on the tennis team, we all lost our cycle. Um, because, yeah, because we are just being pushed to that limit. So, so then do you feel like in, this is another thing, 
thought I've had is, is there a better part of the cycle to do more endurance? Like, what do you do with the woman who wants to run a half marathon? Um, are there parts of the cycle where we can actually do better with longer runs? I think that all through the cycle is great for uh, steady state. So if she's an endurance runner, I think there's no time that she can stay away from it. Um, I will caution that I find that, you know, especially the endurance runners, uh, they tend to, my marathon runners, uh, they tend to, uh, we'll say only train in that realm, like in that vertical, which is like steady state cardio. And then they will forsake other things like the Mm -hmm. lifting, like the weight training. And as we'll get to, I think in perimenopause, this is an incredibly important consideration where we need to be lifting weights. So for an endurance woman, someone who loves to run, uh, my cardio bunnies that are listening, I'm not taking it away. I'm just saying that the hit, (laughs) just, just lay off the hit in week two, um, because of the, uh, we'll say, uh, tendency. It's not all the time, but there's a tendency for the ligaments to be a little bit more loosey goosey. So we do tend to see in the literature that we see more, uh, you know, catastrophic blowouts of ligamentous injuries. Like in, you know, I I talked about this in my book in the Betty body, but in the ACL, um, ligaments in the, in the knee, which is a very Mm. important stabilizing, uh, uh, set of ligaments in the knee tend to be blown out in female athletes in that week too, because they don't, they don't, you know, if they're athletes, they're just training all the time and there's no consideration really for the cycle. So I do like to stay away from explosive types of movement, uh, like cardio types of movement, like the sprinting and the whatever, uh, you know, the pellet, the orange theory and all that kind of stuff, uh, in, in week two. Which, which I just want to point out, like, this is mind blowing when you stop and you think about it, because I I mean, I joined Orange Theory years ago and I just went. I didn't think like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be doing this during ovulation, my ovulation window. Like this is this is why I love conversations like this, because women get injured and I and I want to go into the perimenopausal woman especially gets injured. And we don't realize that there's a hormonal connection to that. Um, so also my thought, what do you think about the week before your period when progesterone's coming in and I, I progesterone really makes us feel inner. Um, yeah. and we not, we don't have that same drive to go after the, the marathon to up our weights. I really feel like that's the time that we should nurture ourselves more and go into yoga, more hiking. But as women, we push through that, that week. So in so many different ways and working out is one, but if, what do you feel about for cardio and weights during that week? I personally am a huge yoga, like up your yoga that week, but is there anything else we need to consider on those two things? Yeah, sure. So that actually is beautiful because that finishes up the menstrual cycle, like how you should train through the cycle. Yeah. So in week three, you know, so you have this ovulation, you know, ovulation happens, the egg is released, hopefully. But right before ovulation, of course, estrogen tanks, right? It comes Mm -hmm. right back down. And then in week three, it starts to rise again. So it doesn't rise as high as it does in week two, but it does come back up for that secondary rise. And then it's like a sustained sort of peak for about a week. So in week three, it kind of looks hormonally like week one, where we have low estrogen at the beginning, and then we have a rise in estrogen towards the end. So I like to return if you're lifting weights back to that eight to 12 rep range, like a nice moderate range. And then in week four, and then like any type of cardio that you like. And then in week four, 
for the weights, this is where, you know, to your point around kind of taking it easy, I like to drop back on the weights, but up Mm. the reps. So it's a lighter weight, but it's a higher rep. So like 15 to 20 reps, something, even 30 reps, something like that. Again, you're still trying to get close to fatigue, but it's a different way of fatiguing the muscle. And Mm -hmm. the beautiful thing about a high rep, low weight workout, uh, particularly in that week four, is a lot of women do, as you said, like they feel like kind of slow and lethargic. Maybe they feel inflamed. Maybe they're moody. They feel a little, you know, holding on to a little bit of like water and like maybe their breasts are a little tender. So as we are, the the nice thing about every time you contract a muscle, uh, and this is very true in week four, if you're training this week with a higher rep count, is you release something called a myokine, which is uh, part of the immune system and it has anti-inflammatory properties to it. So you can still, through your exercise regime, help to modulate and help to improve some of the symptoms of PMS if you're experiencing them. Mm. And you're not pushing. It's not like, you know, it's like tits up and we're doing like you know, crazy, you know, we're doing like a hundred pounds that. or whatever on the squat. It's, it's a little bit easier, right? So you might right. say, okay, I was doing 65 pounds. I'm just making numbers up here, but 65 pounds in week two for a squat. And now I'm going to do 20 pounds, right? Mm. So I'm going to hold two, you know, 20 pound or two 10 pound uh, dumbbells, let's say, and I'm going to do 30 reps of that, right? Every time you punch that out, uh, you are going to be helping to reduce the inflammatory response there. So I do like other forms of exercise as well. Like some women don't feel like working out. Like, let's just be honest. Some people are like, I, if I look at a weight room, I'll kill someone. So I, I do like to honor the, you know, the individual kind of preferences of, 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 you know, if you are someone who loves yoga and that really helps with your mental state, your clarity, and let's be honest, like some yoga, like yoga is a workout. Like I'm always oh, yeah. after yoga. Yeah. So I think that there's, there's a time and a place for that as well. If that really makes you feel good and you sort of feel like you're getting the energy flowing and you have a nice, there's a lot of isometric holds in yoga that are really, really great. Um, I think that that's absolutely, there's absolutely a place, a time and a place for that as well. What I, what I typically, what I like to push for um, and again, with some leniency to the individual and the pre- and the preferences of the individual is it, to weight train as often as you can through the cycle, but just, um, uh, you know, alter it based on where you are and how you're feeling. So we can mm-hmm. do lighter days where maybe in the luteal phase as a whole, the goal is not to get any personal records. We're not punching out any new PRs here. We're just maintaining what we've developed. And then when we get back to the follicular phase, that's our push. That's the mm-hmm. gas. That's when we can be a bit more aggressive with our weight training in that, especially in that week two, where we're trying to up the weight a little bit. Um, and then we can kind of just maintain, develop the, you know, develop the strength and all of that that happens in the luteal phase and the adaptation. And then again, push when we're back into the follicular phase again. Which is exactly the way we do it with fasting. It's like exactly the same thing. Like, it is. Yeah. Like when those hormones go low, we can push things a little bit more. But as they're high, then now we ha- it's like they show up. We got to know their personality and how to match whatever food, fasting, workouts, social engagements to that. And to your point on the um, week before your period, the thing that I have found to be the most mind blowing for me as a woman is that 
I pushed through that week in so many ways for so many months, for so many years. Every time I had a carb craving, every time I didn't feel like doing something, I would create a story in my head of laziness and why couldn't I do that? And I I really want women to understand that you are a different hormonal beast that week before your period. And once you understand the pattern that's right for you, it'll blow your mind that once your actual cycle starts, you actually start feeling better. Like even on day one, like you start start bleeding bleeding and you're like, oh, hallelujah. It's like an orgasm. It's like a release. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh, it's here. (laughs) And one more, one more thing I will, I will say in my, in my quest to inspire women to lift weights uh, at whatever age they are in, in the luteal phase, we are also a bit more insulin resistant, right? Just typically Mm -hmm. a bit more insulin resistant than we are in the follicular phase. So one of the things of course that you can do is whenever you are weight training and you are putting on more muscle, taking up glucose from the system is an, in, at least into the skeletal muscle is an insulin independent uh, process. So mm. you can, the more muscle that you can put on over the course of your life, the better glucose disposal agent you will be. And you don't need insulin to do it because in the muscle, we see glucose taken up by a different, um, uh, it's like a, a, a pat, it's called glut four. So we see this passive, uh, movement of glucose from the, uh, from the plasma into the, into the, into the cell and it's done without insulin. So the more, um, the more muscle that you can put on, the more insulin sensitive, let's say, you can stay in that luteal phase. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And I think that the trend towards muscle, I hope for women, like I hope the women listening to, to us understand that you got to build muscle. You got to. And I think for teenagers as well, the one thing I like to always counsel moms and even the teenagers that I, that I speak to is that you're kind of learning how to ride a bike. You know, this is like a, it's like a new skill, right? Menstruating like a goddess. You're not quite as proficient at it yet. And so there's going to be months where you're going to get very extreme fluctuations. So to your point, if you're able to start tracking your cycle, that's number one far and wide, like data over feelings, like get the data, understand at least the, just get like the length of the cycle, how long you bleed, a little bit of the quality of your blood, like what it looks like beginning of the period to the end of the period, that kind of thing. And then you can start focusing it on some of the further nuances that we've been discussing, like your emotional state. How do you feel? And, you know, apps like no affiliation, but I really love Clue. I do too. That's the yeah. one I, that's the one I use. And it, it gives you the ability to track your cervical mucus, your basal body temperature, your mood, how you Isn't slept, it? like all of these different things. Um, and over time you can get a really nice picture of how you cycle and how you feel at different stages of the cycle. But for a teenager, just know that sometimes it's, it's not going to be perfect because you're just no kind of getting this handle of menstruating. So I love this idea of like restricting the glucose at least or the carbohydrate intake uh, in the beginning of the cycle. So that follicular phase, let's call it like day, you know, day one of your, you know, you know, when you start bleeding, let's say up to about uh, approximately around ovulation. Um, And then how does that change in the second half of the cycle, if at all? Yeah. So, so couple of, I, I want to make sure I just comment on the teenage thing, because this is, I, I'm hoping that there's some younger audience listening and I'm hoping that women that maybe have teenage daughters are sharing this because um, that 
single act of tracking your cycle and getting to know your moods is so important because you're getting to know yourself and you want to know that the hormones are, are, are giving you certain feelings. And I think that's part of the discussion that's not happening. And those feelings are okay. And that They're they're normal. And those of us that have been cycling for years, want you to know they're normal, not to villainize them. So I just want to make sure that I didn't miss that point. Actually, let uh, me, let, can I build on that just for one yeah, minute? Please. Because yeah. one of the, one of the things that I also see, especially like this, my 16 year old, 17 year old girls, 18 year old girls, when they do have wonky cycles, let's say, and they tell mom and mom doesn't listen to your podcast or my podcast, they go to the medical doctor and like, you know what we should do to help you with this? Mm. We should put you on the pill. And then this woman, this six, this young girl, this young woman, his 18 year old, 17 year old, whatever woman now d- is robbed in my opinion, in my uh, opinion of her ability to get to know herself and to actually, if there is an issue uh, to actually fix it. Right. Yep. Uh, there does tend to be, and I, I suppose uh, I had Nat Kringudis on the, on the show, Gosh, this guy, I, I got to get her back on, but, uh, you know, maybe a year or so ago. And she was saying uh, around like that 16 to 18 year old time, they kind of look PCOS-y. Like they yeah, kind of yeah. look like they might have skip cycles. They're getting like tons of ha- like hormonal acne, like, you know, all this kind of. So they go to the doctor and they're like, hey, we have you know, this issue, she's not, she has a missed period, whatever. And they're like, well, you're 18, you're probably sexually active. Let's put you on the pill. And I will not mince my words here uh, when I say that I don't think that that's the appropriate solution, number one, and it is a form of chemical castration. And I know that that's an extreme statement, but it is. And I can, I can justify that, um, with tons of data, because, uh, you know, ironically, of course, when you get on the pill, what ends up happening? You, you know, paradoxically, you have no more libido. You're like, oh, great. I'm on the pill. I can have tons and tons of sex. Well, you don't feel like it anymore. It has deleterious effects on your brain. Women take more risks when they are on synthetic hormones, like the progesterone. I know we're off on a topic Mm. here, but I'm just, allow me my soapbox for a moment. I love it. Yeah. Like you, you tend, women tend to take uh, make more risky decisions when they are on progestin, which is a synthetic form. Mm. We haven't gone to progesterone yet, but well, this will make sense in a minute when Dr. Mindy talks about progesterone versus natural progesterone. It gobbles up your B vitamins. It gobbles up your coenzyme uh, Q10. And you tend to, this is something that I learned from uh, Jolene Brighton, who was also on the show uh, a while ago, is that it messes up your major histocompatibility complex, meaning that when we are choosing mates, from an evolutionary perspective, we want to choose someone who is going to be as gen- like the most genetically diverse to us, right? We don't want to choose people that have the same, like we don't want to like mate with our cousins, right? <laughs> hopefully <laughs> not, not. Yet. Hopefully not. Okay. Hopefully, hopefully not. Um, but what happens when you're on the pill is you actually start choosing, like it messes up your, you know, whether it's pheromones or, you know, what, you know, your, um, your major histocompatibility uh, complex, which is located uh, and it's connected to the um, the olfactory nerve. And so you end up choosing mates. This is so gross, but you end up choosing mates that are 
more genetically similar to you than dissimilar to you. So a lot of women uh, will say that when they get, let's say they've been with a mate, like they've been with a partner for whatever it is, like 10 years, and she's been on the pill that whole time. And then she gets off the pill because now they're ready to have kids. Once she gets off the pill, she's like, ew, this guy is disgusting. Like I'm not into him. So (laughs) that that doesn't happen to everyone, but that is not something I guarantee that is not being discussed in in the side effects and the possibility. So you really, and then not to mention, we're not even talking about fertility and how it can impact fertility and how it shuts off the brain, gonadal access. Like we're not even getting into like how, like the chemical castration piece, but be very wary about putting a 16 year old on the pill. Yes. Yes. And oh my God, thank that was beautiful, beautifully said. And I just want to point out that If you're 16 and you go on the pill, what's now happened is there's something else controlling that HPO access. Like your your brain and your ovaries are being manipulated by an exogenous source. So there's never an internal knowing of your own hormones. And to your point, that knowing gives us this strong intuition like, hey, this person I want to mate with this or I don't want to mate with. But it also gives us that especially estrogen. Estrogen can be very intuitive um, and give us that superpower where we know when something's right for us and when something's not right for us. I even recently did some research on uh, the matriarchal society that existed in the BC years. And in those years, women, the, the society was really a more uh, more highlighted and driven by women. And one of the things that that was really held as a powerful attribute is intuition. And yet now, if we fast forward to this patriarchal world that we're living in, in this chemical castrated scenario And then you put a a phone in a kid's hand who's judging themselves against every other woman on Instagram. And you've completely lost the ability for these teenage girls to be able to to discover themselves. There's too much outside manipulation. They don't even know who they are. And that, to me, has to stop. Let's talk a little bit about um, the difference between PMS and PMDD, because I think that a lot of, again, there's conflation between the two terms. I think that what's often, um, uh, uh, what's commonly thought of PMDD is just a worse form of PMS, which of course is not necessarily the case. Can you, can you de- delineate between uh, both of those for me? And yes. for our listeners? Yeah. So PMS is really interesting because we, we get taught, it's another thing that we get taught that we're supposed to feel a certain way right before a period. And we say, I'm PMSing. And I find that troublesome because we're putting ourselves in this basket of this, of with expectations that we're supposed to feel bad when PMS is it's a syndrome and a syndrome is a collection of symptoms. And there's a whole range of different symptoms. And so what I love is if you're experiencing certain symptoms, say in the week or so, right before your period, you dig a little bit deeper and you say, well, what actually going on for me? Instead of just labeling it PMS, you're saying, well, is this preventional anxiety? 
what are the cravings that I'm experiencing and how can I recognize that these are a sign from my body that I need something, you know, the kind of common one is chocolate being maybe a need for magnesium right. or is it premenstrual depression? You know, let's dig a little bit deeper. And then we look, we move from PMS to PMDD. So premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which typically happens after ovulation. It's not, as I've seen on Instagram, an extreme form of PMS. It's something completely different. It's something, you know, there's still, as with many women's health conditions, there's still no kind of, there's a lot of theories around the cause of PMDD. There is discussions about it being um, a genetic mutation. So a SNP on the way that that these women handle the post-ovulatory rise in progesterone and that smaller seconds peak of estrogen. Um, And so this leads to issues around mood regulation. So it can be a spectrum where it can be teariness, anger, all the way through to suicidal ideation. And then you add physical symptoms on top of it. So it's this lethargy, it's muscle pain. It's, you know, this just feeling of not being able to fully engage in your life. And this gets lumped in with PMS and it's completely different. And the issue that I see a lot over here is that doctors are still trying to understand PMDD and women get told, oh, we'll take an antidepressant for the last two weeks of your menstrual cycle stop when you have your period and then take start taking it again after ovulation and you and I both know that you know antidepressants don't work like that so to be cycling on and off of a really powerful medication causes further issues because you think about the effect that these medications have on gut health And, you know, with PMDD, there's theories about the way that the body uses serotonin as well. So it's a very complex, not very well understood condition. And it often gets just kind of lumped in as this kind of psychiatric issue that needs to be treated with antidepressants when it's actually a whole body issue that can be managed in a a number of different ways for some women where they are having suicidal ideation, it might be beneficial for them to be on an antidepressant for a short period of time where they're feeling like they're, so they can feel like they're getting a handle on their situation. You know, that's not for me to say because I'm not a doctor, but I have seen this being beneficial in the past, along with a more holistic approach. But for other women, you know, that holistic approach from the beginning is super beneficial. So I think it's really powerful to understand the difference between the two, the two conditions. Yeah. And do we, do you find that, um, are there ways that we can ameliorate some of the symptoms, let's say through nutrition? Have you found clinically with your, uh, with your clients that when you're maybe adding in 
let's say more zinc or making sure that they're getting choline or making sure that they're, you know, the full complement of B vitamins um, are being ingested either, you know, in a supplement form, or we're making sure that they're getting the nuts, the seeds, the meats, that kind of thing. Do you find that there is an improvement in symptoms and can, is there a, uh, maybe I know that, you know, keeping this bio-individuality in mind, are there, uh, we'll say general patterns that you've been able to suss out uh, or been able to tease out, let's say, uh, around nutritional um, uh, remedies that have been helpful? Yes, definitely. So looking at the gut has always been a really great starting point um, because of the connection with mental health, but also hormone metabolism. So that's always a great place to start. So, you know, looking at not only optimizing the, the gut flora, but looking at digestion itself. So it's simple, very simple, but are, are they having a bowel movement? You know, so many women believe that it's normal just to have one or two bowel movements a week. You know, it's, it's not, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Let the record show that it's yeah. not normal. Yeah. Daily bowel movements, at least one a day. Yes, exactly. Um, So starting with the gut is really powerful. Something I find really, really hopeful is looking at vitamin D. Um, Because, so speaking about um, the people that I see in the UK, there's a huge issue over here with vitamin D deficiency. And we know the effect that it has on um, mood status. And so when you're looking at, supplementation in the, you know, testing to see what the status is, if there's a deficiency supplementation, but also when it's sunny, it's been quite sunny over here in London for the last couple of weeks, you know, fingers crossed. It's fingers crossed. Like I spend a couple of summers in London. I know it's always raining there, but you get always used to it. raining. Yeah. yeah. When you're getting that vitamin D from the sun, you know, really taking advantage of being able to top up your levels and getting that really powerful form and also benefiting from that, you know, that serotonin production that happens when you're out, even when you're outside, that is really, really powerful. I found for my, my clients with PMDD, because it's something that they can do quite easily and they feel quite empowered by it because PMDD can feel really disempowering because your moods just feel out of control. So those are two things that I've found, you know, some of the things that you've mentioned as well, the zinc, the choline, the B vitamin, B6 is very, very powerful, but those are two, two other areas that I always like to look at. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because um, you'll find people in Florida, like I've had labs from people that live in Florida with deficient vitamin D. So, you know, we all, we all say, oh, London, you know, it's like you bring your umbrella everywhere, but you can have normal vitamin D levels from, you know, someone, a Lon- someone who's living in London and someone who's living in Florida where you might, where you might expect while well, they're out in the sun all day long. Well, no, we're not out in the sun all day long. We're indoors under artificial light. And we don't necessarily, not everybody has the opportunity to go out every morning, let's say, and get Mm. some of that uh, low solar angle uh, sunlight, or even just midday, you know, some people are in an office all day long. Yeah. So in your, um, in your experience, uh, if someone does have a menstrual cycle, let's say that is, um, 
we'll say that there's some derangement, maybe the bleed week, maybe there's some, you know, ovulatory pain, maybe there's luteal phase, uh, PMS and, or, uh, maybe even, uh, uh, the PMDD, how long would you say, um, does it take for, um, symptoms to start alleviating if they're taking uh, under, under counsel, uh, some of the recommendations that you're giving them with the movement and maybe the sun and the D and the, and the stress management? I need to manage expectations here. Everyone is different. Uh, What I've seen is that changes can be seen within the month. You know, if you're really kind of getting things dialed in, really looking at the full picture of your health. So how are you sleeping? Sleep is so powerful. And a lot of us neglect that. Um, how often are you eating? Are you eating enough? Are you adding in the fiber, the greens? Are you eating enough fats, the protein? Are you moving your body regularly? You know, we've talked about the bowel movement, so important when it comes to hormone and menstrual health, but also that kind of connection with the community is so important. So looking all at all of that and then supplementation as a kind of cherry on top, Although having said that, it, you know, it, it can be really powerful as very powerful intervention in the beginning when you want to get things moving. Um, you can see changes within the month. So, but everyone is different. Some people, they just respond more slowly. They've got a lot more going on when it comes, when it comes to the lead for liver support or gut support. It just, everyone's different, but you can change your menstrual health. You know, you don't have to live with whatever you're experiencing. You can change. And those changes can definitely be seen within three months. And, you know, I think that um, women who are in that drop zone, let's say, like those, you know, that age 46 to 48, um, we really do underestimate the impact of that chronic you know, in your case, very acute and then long lasting, uh, chronic low grade stress and inflammation. And you described the pathway before where there's sort of this diversion, uh, to be able to make cortisol in order to be in that survival mode at the expense of, uh, some of our sex hormones like estrogen and testosterone. And just to round out this conversation, um, you know, I, I have a lot of patients that will say, you know, I just don't feel like, confident anymore. You know, I don't feel like I, my, my person, I feel like I'm shrinking. That's a lot. I I sort of get that. um, Like, I don't feel like I'm, you know, putting my best foot forward. I don't feel proud. And when we sort of look at this from a physiological perspective, of course, you know, estrogen, uh, at least, I mean, one of the many effects that it has, and I'm oversimplifying this a little bit, but one of the many effects that estrogen has certainly in the brain in particular is it bathes our verbal uh, centers. So we are much more articulate. We have, you know, much more colorful vocabulary that we might be able to draw on. And testosterone, of course, does help with our confidence. You know, it's famous for libido, of course. And yes, it's, you know, certainly, you know, intensity of orgasm, sensitivity of the clitoris, uh, like all of that is all true. But in terms of like those brain-based changes, we don't feel as confident. We don't feel like being, going out to a party, let's say, or going out to a, it doesn't have to be a party, like 
like a dinner, like you were, you know, or lunching with the ladies, uh, like you were last week, you don't feel like being social. And then you sort of get into this really vicious loop where maybe you're not talking as much as you should be. You're not socializing as much as you should be. And you become more insular and insular and inward and inward. And, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about some of your research in terms of menopause around the world. But one of the things that I think is sorely missing, uh, at least in North American society, you know, post pandemic, I think we can say post, right? We're beyond the pandemic at this point. Hopefully we'll see <laughs> post pandemic is this isolation, right? That we've all experienced, right? This, this uh, lack of connection and lack of communication, um, which sort of brings me around to oxytocin, which is something that you're one of the few practitioners that I see talking about consistently. Can you talk a little bit about the impact of oxytocin? You called it sort of the mother or maybe you didn't, you said the master hormone, uh, you called it the master hormone. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the queen, the reigning hormone, right? Absolutely. And and it's so important because we're going through this perimenopause time period. And just to emphasize the reason that keto works so well is because we need and the benefit of estrogen, it promotes gluconeogenesis in the brain. Our brain will soak up the use of glucose. I mean, it is the primary consumer. So in perimenopause, we're getting the brain fog, all these neurologic symptoms, in addition to the hormonal symptoms, the neurologic symptoms, it's because our brain is starving for fuel, essentially. When we shift to from glucose as a primary source to ketones as the primary source, that's not hormone dependent. So that shift brings the clarity, brings the, you know, that's like jet fuel to the brain where glucose is gasoline. And so it's a huge, a huge difference. And that's where, why I say it's not just a good idea in perimenopause and menopause, it's mandatory. It's mandatory. So from forties on shifting with metabolic flexibility, right? With some variety. I love my feasting. That's part of celebrating in community too. So um, with, with metabolic flexibility, but getting into ketosis, a good percentage of the time, over half, if not 80% of the time. And so that shift is essential to breeze through menopause into what the Japanese call the second spring of our lives. And that makes a difference. And in order to do that, we have to um, become insulin sensitive. So the, you know, your book, my books, rec that's what we're driving people towards, insulin sensitivity. And you and I with a similar heritage, uh, you know, certainly me, I feel like I can live for six months in the Sahara with no food and water and I will be fine. <laughs> Same. <laughs> It'll be fine. Mm -hmm. My body is so metabolically conservative. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is by design, but survival genes, right? Survival genes. And that's good. It's another way to look at those otherwise, you know, tagged as fat genes, cancer genes, diabetes genes, heart gene, heart disease genes. If you've got that in your family, congratulations. You are a warrior. You're a warrior, babe, right? Like, oh my gosh, you're designed to be an Amazonian, you know, a, a Saharan princess, whatever it may be, but shift your, the way we think about the things that our family history. Why did that? Why are we so 
empowered by these, you know, like the Native Americans, for instance, a perfect example of these diabetes genes. No, you've got warrior genes. You know, I tell my young um, teenage girls, Pocahontas genes or Mulan genes or whatever their heritage, you know, an ideal that they can focus on or relate to. That's that's the difference. In menopause, we've got these amazing, this amazing transition of our, you know, epigenetics to empower us in the right environment. So we can, guess what, create our environment to overpower some of the you know, technically worse genes, we've called them the worst genes, but there are survival genes. We are empowered by those. So there's my argument for that, Stephanie. That's like all reframing, right? All reframing makes a difference. I like that. And I, I wanted to maybe double click on something that you just said, which of course, um, you know, you and I being sort of advocates for the ketogenic diet for women. Um, one of the things that I've also heard, uh, and I did this myself. So when I first got into keto, I was like, I'm going to do it like all the boys are doing it like uh, you know Dom D'Agostino is gonna fast for seven days I'm gonna fast for seven days you know I see Peter Atia doing something I'm like I'm gonna do what Peter's doing you know mm-hmm. and yeah uh, of course I've had Dom on the podcast and uh, we've had this discussion around the ketogenic diet and how we should be nuancing it for women of course at the time I was being bullheaded and stubborn uh, make the case for my for my heritage you, you probably <laughs> might be able to do that but uh, let's talk a little bit about and you said metabolic flexibility I am a really big advocate for and I know you are too around this idea of a therapeutic intervention of ketosis. Because then you get those ladies that they say when they're 50, they're like, I've been doing it for six months and I don't feel good, right? So is there, and I'll ask this, is there a place for, um, you know, for lack of a better word, keto cycling, you know, protein and carbohydrate cycling? I like to, I'd like to talk about it in the context of through the menstrual cycle. Um, but let's expand that a little bit and let's talk about how that might apply to perimenopause and then menopause as well. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, with my book, Menupause, there are different pauses because as women have been doing now for years, my first book, um, The Hormone Fix came out in 2019, but I've been doing my online magic menopause program since 2015. And as I've worked with women and we get stuck doing the same thing all the time, right? And it no longer serves us. It no longer serves us. So we have to change it up. And so these pauses came from that. So like, following a keto green kind of basis, um, definitely working with intermittent fasting and no more snacking. All my menus are two or three meals a day, depending. But each six-day pause pauses something different. So like keto green extreme is more autoimmune paleo, avoiding nightshades and peppers. And the second one is all plants, avoiding meats. And really, as we know, plant diversity increases microbial diversity in our gut and is really strong resilience. Plus, a lot of people doing keto are very constipated. We cannot have constipation, have good skin and pretty hair and, you know, and be nice. We can't have constipation. (laughs) And be nice. You can't be constipated and be nice. (laughs) You cannot. So uh, remember that. And and then we go to a carnivore plan. And so avoiding all vegetables, which have sometimes been hard to digest. And we're giving your system a chance to rest in each of these different pauses. And then there's a cleanse plan. And then there's a carb up plan. Sometimes my ladies have been doing following my program and and not doing any feast days. And I have no problem with that, Stephanie, no problem with missing, you know, like feast days are just part of my life. But, you know, 
I work with women and um, we have to add carbs back, some sweet potatoes, some root vegetables. We have to up their carb intake. And some women will actually lose weight during that, but they'll feel better, sleep better. And that's an important, that's an important thing to, to do too. And I don't want anyone to be, um, have uh, restriction fatigue or diet fatigued or be stuck doing the same thing every day because, you know, variety is the spice of life. I love that quote. And it's so true. Variety is the spice of life. But just like you can't do the same workout routine every day, you can't feed your body the same thing every day, it will develop food sensitivities, resistance. And we want to keep changing things up to support gut microbial diversity. So that's a really key part. And that supports estrogen metabolism and um, hormone and neurotransmitter serotonin production. So we need that healthy, diverse gut. And especially for women, men have 10 times as much testosterone. They can get away with a lot more restriction. They can get away with a lot less al you know, alkalinity focus because they have 10 times as much testosterone, which converts to estrogen, which is why they don't get that rapid brain fog memory loss in their andropausal years that we do in our menopausal years. And I wanted to just pause and talk. I wanted to... Um get your thoughts on, uh, if you wanted to comment on PCOS, um, this is the most common hormonal, uh, issue that I see. Uh, I see sort of this general testosteroneization, uh, mm -hmm. of our beautiful female population. And part of that is part of its roots are in this hyper insulinemic state. And I have found, at least with a ketogenic diet and fasting, like phenomenal results with that. I don't know if you wanted to add to that comment. Has that been your observation in, you know, with your patients, with your groups? What do you see with PCOS and fasting? Well, it's interesting that you that you asked me this question because yesterday I had a menopausal female. So I have a smaller group where we do some lab testing and, uh, you know, I was going through her labs and I was like, you know, she's menopausal, she's 56 years old. Why is she on spironolactone? Not for blood pressure. And so we entertain this whole conversation. I'm looking at her Dutch and I'm trying to figure out, you know, why she has so much free. Well, now it makes sense. She has so much circulating testosterone, can't lose, can't lose some weight. Um, and, and so I started asking, you know, what was it like when you tried to get pregnant with your daughters? Turns out they needed infertility. Um, you know, kind of down this rabbit hole of looking at like, I think you have been insulin resistant to a certain degree for a very long period of time. And here's why. And so I kind of walked her through, okay, your daughters are so many years old. You had to go through infertility. You've been on aldactone or spironolactone for anyone that's listening. It's a potassium sparing diuretic also used for high androgens. Her on her Dutch test, her androgen levels were still high. And I was trying to figure out like where all these pieces of the puzzle, I could see that it was not being aromatized estrogen. I could see that it was clearly staying kind of in its box, but the recognition when I said, okay, we need a glucometer. I'm like, these are the labs you need to do trying to explain to her that, you know, I think over time, and I think there's this misnomer that in particular PCOS women can have this throughout their lifetime, but it can be mitigated just enough. You know, she wasn't obese just enough. Um, that it, it wasn't fully appreciated. And on top of that, interestingly enough, she was on 1200 milligrams of progesterone orally every day. And I, and I was trying to explain to her, you know, this is not helping the insulin sensitivity piece. So I think for listeners to understand that you can be, um, you can be a PCOS or you can be thin, you can be PCOS even in menopause. 
Um, you don't just have to be in those peak fertile years. And so I find PCOS to be one of these, it's like the canary in the coal mine. I think for a lot of people, they assume I'm thin phenotype. I couldn't possibly have PCOS. And it's been my experience that it's very, it can be very subtle. You don't have to have classic findings on an ultrasound. Um, more often than not, when I see women with luteal phase defects who are low in progesterone, who are struggling with infertility or having irregular cycles, and it's been that way for years, and it's been masked by synthetic hormones, um, more often than not, um, you know, a first starting place for people like that is really talking to them about ketogenic, low carb diets and eating less often. And just with diet intervention and eating less often, seeing significant and profound changes. And I think that on so many levels, if you're listening, um, and I'm sure, you know, if you are listening to Dr. Estima's podcast, I know that you're already super savvy and smart, but if any of those things sound familiar to you, um, I was one of those people who had a thin phenotype and had a luteal phase defect and went through infertility treatment. And because I was always thin, no one ever said, oh, by the way, you might have mild PCOS. It wasn't until I couldn't get pregnant. And so you better believe as I went through perimenopause and into menopause, like really cognizant of where my testosterone levels were, where my insulin is. And I think that it's important for people to hear that you can with, again, diet and milk frequency, you can absolutely kind of turn, you know, and improve those hormonal profiles so that you can lessen the likelihood you're going to suffer from side effects. Yeah, really, really well said. I think that that's so important that it's not your morphology that determines. So you can, like, there are, there is a subset, of course, of PCOS individuals who are what we would classify as obese. Their BMI would be over 25 and we would, we would classify them that way. But there's just as many uh, who fit, who would not be classified as obese that would fit the diagnostic criteria for that. But as you just said, people don't look for it because mm -hmm. there's still this kind of judgment, like this sort of fiend, like you you're more, they're sort of, they make a call in terms of how you look like, well, she can't be obese. And to, you know, just, I'm going to hang my hat on this, but I think that I don't even like the term polycystic because we know that women who don't have PCOS can have the appearance of cysts, right? Which is just an immature follicle. It's not really a cyst, but it's like an immature follicle on the, on the ovary. And then you have women who have PCOS that don't have the presence of those cysts on the ovary anyway. So there's some problems even in the, even in the, in the nomenclature, uh, which I, within the terminology in the, in the vernacular that we use. And I think that that's also important because our language informs the way that we think about things. Right. And this is, I had uh, Dr. Robert Lustig on, uh, maybe it's last year now, maybe it was, I forget when it, when his, when his book came out, uh, I think it was last year. And he was talking about this classification of people. Uh, we, we were talking about this in the context of visceral fat. Uh, and he called them, and it's a medical term. It's, they're called, uh, TOFI, T-O-F-I. So thin on the outside, but fat, meaning visceral fat on the inside. So you can have like, if you look at Cynthia, like you're a petite woman, right? So you wouldn't be like, oh, this woman has metabolic issues, mm -hmm. but PCOS is in part a metabolic problem. So thank you for saying that um, so eloquently. After 40, 
pick those weights up, girl, like put, put the running shoes down, pick up the weights, your menopausal symptoms will be dramatically different if you do that. So let's talk a little bit about what happens after 40, because I can tell you as a 52 year old woman, nobody tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, guess what? In your 40s, everything's going to hormonally change. And so every part of your lifestyle needs to change. Yeah, I think um, really starting at about 35, we start Mm. to see changes in the uh, concentration and the amount of progesterone that we that we produce every month. So progesterone only shows up in the luteal phase, uh, helps us with our sleep, helps us chill out, activates GABA receptors. It it turns into a a neurosteroid, allopregnolone, and then activates the GABA receptors, which is why sometimes in the luteal phase, at least in week three, uh, you'll find that you get really towards the end of week three when when progesterone tends to peak is you'll you'll have some of the best sleep of your life and you're a little bit more like it helps to kind of alleviate it should help to alleviate anxiety feelings of nervousness depression that kind of thing so in our 40s uh as we are just naturally as a just as a natural consequence of aging, starting to see this sort of stepwise decline in progesterone over the years, one of the first things that I'll uh, usually ask, and people have a lot of pushback on this because no one wants to admit that they're anxious or depressed, is they'll say, yeah, like I'm feeling like I worry more. I have mm. a, a hard time turning my mind off at night. Yep. Like I, I, yep. I, I'm at the end of the day, like replaying the events or like I'm just this constant, like it's this worrier kind of uh, mentality and this inability to shut off the mind in the evening. That's usually kind of a clinical indication that maybe the progesterone is starting to decline. Yeah. That Um, was so, that was so politely said. (laughs) I'm like, I'm like, where did fucking progesterone go? Like, man, like if I could go back to my 25 year old self, I would just love on progesterone. I would thank her every day because my four, when I was 45 and she wasn't there for me, I felt like, like, where did you go bestie? (laughs) We've been best friends for so long and you just dumped me. <laughs> it's like a girlfriend breakup. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it's hard. It's hard. And I think that it's, and then, and then you, and then in kind of as you progress through your 40s, there's almost like kind of three or four stages of, of perimenopause, right? So you start yes. to see this like contraction of the cycle initially, where let's say you've been like a, you know, I, I've always been like a, you know, 29 and a half to 30 day girl. Like I've kind mm. of always, you know, and then like now I'm noticing I'm kind of approaching mid forties now. I'm like, oh, I, I, I've lost a day. Like I'm 28 mm. now. Like I'm always, I mean, oh. still within normal range, but it's like, yeah. oh, I'm shorter, like a day yeah. shorter now. And then actually I have, um, I think I mentioned this to you last time, one of my ovaries is a little is like a little shorter than my so like some like every other month it it's lags. like tw- yeah I it's, it's a laggy <laughs> one so it's like every other month it's like twenty seven and then and then it's twenty eight so my my I can't remember which one it is it might be my right ovary anyway, so so does like, that mean like our ovaries are like our children like just because we have them doesn't mean their personalities are the same <laughs> they're sisters they're not twins yeah they're. <laughs> <laughs> They're a little different, but yeah. Yeah I, yeah. I never thought of that, but you're right. You know, and sometimes you feel a little bit of pain in one and then not in oh, the yeah. other. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I actually, um, I know when I've ovulated, I feel it. Um, it's, uh, there's like a little bit of cramping for me that not everybody has that, but you know, I, and I remember when I was having my, uh, you know, when I was trying to conceive my children, like I felt, I was like, 
I'm pregnant. Like I knew it. I knew the moment yep. it happened. I was like, I'm pregnant. I, I know it even before, you know, all yep. the tests or whatever could tell me that I was pregnant. I knew it. Yeah. Um, me, me too, by the way, with both of them, I was like, boom, like yeah. within it, within days I knew. So very, very that. true. Yeah. I, I know. That. I it's so that. great. But here's what I see in perimenopausal women is that as estrogen goes down, collagen goes down. Yeah. And, and yeah, that your skin texture and yeah, yep. hair and yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Skin, hair, you're more prone to injury. Injuries hang around a lot more. Mm-hmm. So do you feel like women over, I say over 40, I agree with you that 35, we're starting to see a lot of perimenopause symptoms. Do you feel like that's the time to up collagen and up it throughout the whole cycle? Oh, that's a really good question. You know, I think in the context of muscle building, collagen is a terrible form of protein. Mm. So um, it doesn't do anything. It's not anabolic to skeletal tissue, but it is, as your to your point, very important for skin, hair, and nails. Um, I, you know, I don't know if I have a, a, a cyclical cadence around collagen supplementation. I typically will have some collagen, you know, I'm 44 now, so I will have collagen almost every day. Mm. Um, so I'll usually, but I don't count it to like, if I, I usually will tr- like, you know, train in the morning, that's kind of the time I get to train and I'll put some whey protein because I know that that's anabolic to skeletal muscle. Mm-hmm. meaning it'll stimulate growth. And I'll also put a little scoop of collagen in there because I know that, you know, I've been sweating and it's just like the time that I'm going to remember it. Do I, I don't cycle it in any way, but I do think that it is an important consideration for women because that's one of the things that I hear. They're like, you know, I'm 45 or I'm 48. And like, my skin is just not the same. Oh, yeah. Like I can pinch it now. It's yep. like, it doesn't have the same suppleness. Um, so I do think that collagen is important for, um, and even just our joints, right. And our ligaments. Mm-hmm. So this is yep. also like from an inter, like we can talk about it being vain and I'm totally a vain woman. So I'm like, yeah, I want good skin, <laughs> hair and nails. So I'm totally yeah. taking the collagen, but also the structural elements that allow for the, for the muscles to move. Right. It's really important for our discs. It's important for our cartilage. It's important for our bones. It's important for everything. So yeah. I, I typically take a scoop and I don't, I'm trying to think of what the scoop is now. I want to say maybe 20 grams. Uh, hydrolyzed, uh, hydrolyzed collagen, maybe. I don't yeah, know. The, the, yeah, the powder I use, I only know the protein is like 17 grams of, yeah. of protein. But your point is really well taken that just because it's 17 grams of protein doesn't mean that it's the best protein source for um, your muscles. For your muscles. But it is exactly. a really great, it, it is a really great source for your ligaments and your yes. collagen and your discs and your skin and your hair and your nails. So we yeah. want to be thinking about different proteins for different goals, right? We want, yeah. like, in my opinion, animal protein and a derivative of it, whey protein is going to be the most bioavailable full complement of amino acids for musculoskeletal repair and for uh, muscle protein synthesis. Collagen doesn't do that. Collagen does not do anything for our muscles. It's just Mm -hmm. really all about kind of the structural elements that we care about with collagen. And do you think this is another thought that I've had when I watch 48 year old women or women in their after 45, they're getting injuries, perhaps athletic injuries, and they're not resolving as quickly. That is that is a trend that I see over and over and over again. And so what I noticed in clinical practice was if we could bring in some collagen and even mega dose with collagen, like two, three scoops of collagen a day, we could start to help resolve these injuries. Um, I'm even next week speaking at a chiropractic conference here, The Wave, and I'm going to show chiropractors how 
we need to pay attention to the changes in collagen and the changes in hormones around even something as simple and as powerful as a chiropractic adjustment, because it really makes a difference for overall integrity of the joint. So curious. And when you're talking about injuries, you're talking about like ligamentous injuries, joint injuries, that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. That totally makes a hundred percent sense. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that we know about those, those structures, unfortunately, particularly ligaments, very poor blood supply. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you have a muscle, you you have a muscle injury, we know that like there's a lot of blood that feeds that muscle because it's functional contractile tissue. It's how we move. Ligaments, unfortunately, don't have a really great blood supply. So they often take longer naturally anyway, whether you're 25 Mm -hmm. or 55. But to your point, when you're older, of course, we have let's say, uh, and especially in our, in our menopausal, uh, years, we start to behave at least our cardiovascular, cardiopulmonary system starts to behave more like men. So that, you know, Mm -hmm. under the influence of estrogen in our reproductive years, that does positively influence the vasoconstriction and vasodilation of our arteries, which is why actually, when we just look at cardiovascular disease, we see that most like men will get it earlier than women. There's a kind of this phasic shift, like men will get it 10 to 15 years earlier than women. And it's partially because women spend about 40 years or so menstruating, right? So we have this constant turnover and under the influence of estrogen, we keep these, we keep the ability to vasodilate and vasoconstrict, uh, Uh, more active. And then in a sort of lower estrogen environment, like you see in menopause, we do start to behave more like men. So, you know, when you say, you know, there's women that in their forties and fifties, let's say who have these injuries that are just these niggling injuries that don't seem to clear up. Part of that is because of the, uh, we'll say reduction in blood flow generally to most structures, which is why things like, you know, making sure that you're going for low level, like low level activity all the time. I'm a huge fan of like going for walks and, you know, steady state cardio and even the burst training and the weightlifting, like all of that is all good for circulatory flow yoga. As you mentioned, Pilates, all of these things, these are all very, very important for injuries. Like let's say of the ankle, of the shoulder, of the knee, where there's a lot of ligamentous structures, I do like to do things. And I I would love your your thoughts on this too, um, just knowing your training and your background and expertise. I love to try to bring as much uh, blood flow in there as possible. So the collagen is really important. And I would also layer on things like red light therapy and heat and trying to just as much as we can bring blood, like it's almost contrary to the rice, which we know, like the rest ice compression which yeah. we, I was taught in chiropractic school, which has now been completely outdated and we don't yeah. do it anymore, no. but bringing more heat into the area uh, to try and, and get the blood in the area to try to clean up and, and, and heal the, uh, you know, the, the, the problem that's in the ligament, well, let's say. All you've got to do is take a 47 year old woman and put her in a hot yoga class, not like a crazy hot one. But I can tell you when I first go into a hot yoga class, I feel like I'm 25 again because of all the warming up now too hot. And I'm going to tear people's heads off because I'm like, you know, I could go into like a more hot flash kind of place. But I do believe to your point, warming up is really important. The other the and getting heat and circulation in there because you don't have 
as these hormones that are supporting really good fluid movement of the joints. And there's a whole, a whole bunch of reasons behind that. So why don't you explain uh, to uh, our listeners why we need to be looking at the menstrual cycle? I always call it your hormonal report card. You get a report card at the end or the beginning of the month, you know, about how your stress management, your eating, your sleeping, your exercise, your movement, that sort of the, a lay of the land, let's say through the bleed week. Why do we want to be looking at our menstrual cycle as our fifth vital sign? Well, if you think about your other vital signs, so if you're, you know, you're out of out of breath all the time, or your heart rate is going all over the place, you're immediately going to be concerned, and you're immediately going to want to investigate that. I think we need to think about our menstrual cycle and our period in the same way. It's a vital sign. It's an indicator of our health status, and you know, lots of things, as you mentioned affect that. So if you're overly stressed, if there's some sort of nutrient deficiency, if you're exercising too much, even trauma, all of that affects your your menstrual health. And so this is where education is really powerful. It's just firstly knowing how important your period is um, and not, you know, for example, if it goes missing, that's not something to celebrate. That's something to really dig deeper into. Um, so, you know, you have an idea of what's working. You know, we're not talking about being machines and constantly optimizing our body, but we're talking about being more aware of ourselves as cyclical beings. And this period is part of a wider, very beautiful cycle that once we have the education, we can harness and get a lot of power out of. So just knowing more about your period is the first step to being able to just live live a better life and feel better about yourself. I like that. And I think that, um, you know, I always say that the period is like the popular girl. She gets all the attention, right? We always forget yeah. about ovulation. There's that, yeah. that, that girl, but she's also really important as well. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the bleed week because we do, I always get a lot of questions about this. Uh, and I know that you'll be able to give us some good insight here. So when we think about what's normal versus what's common, and we're talking about the bleed week specifically, so we're shedding the endometrial lining, there's no fertilized egg, and we are either using a, you know, a menstrual cup, we're using tampons, we're using pads, what have you. What is, and we can kind of go through these in tandem, uh, normal, what should we expect, let's say, at the beginning of our bleed week in terms of flow and color of the blood? And how does that change over the course of the, uh, of the, of your bleed time? Yeah. So I think we should really be expecting a very even flow. You know, some, some women, they, they experience a very heavy flow in the first two days, and then they describe it like a tap turning off. Ideally, we want it to be fairly even and then gradually tailing off with not a huge amount of spotting. It's just, you know, it's just gradually ending. And then that's, that's finished. You're not looking for, you know, you don't want dark, very, very dark, rusty blood. You're looking for more of a cranberry color. Maybe it's a bit darker. If it's brown, especially in the beginning, a lot of brown spotting, that's something to investigate. But the ideal situation, it's 
bright. It's maybe a little bit of a darker cranberry. There's no or very few clots. You know, your clotting is a sign that you need to investigate what's going on with your estrogen, as I say over here, estrogen and progesterone balance. Um, so that's what we're looking for in terms of cl- color and even flow. Um, you know, you're not look, you're not wanting to change your menstrual product every hour. You know, it should be something that you feel that you can manage, especially overnight, where you're not having to get up and change whatever you're using. You're not kind of leaking. It's all feels really manageable. Not maybe not easy, but it feels manageable. Yes. Yeah. And the color, um, uh, what I often find is many women will report, as you're saying, that cranberry color, like that dark or deep, rich red. And then Mm. towards the end of your period, as it's tailing off, then we start to see more of that oxid, like that oxidized blood. So that kind of rusty brown, that's normal. But what you're referring to when it's kind of brown right from the beginning is that potentially if you're, and if you're spotting as well, maybe there's some, you know, we can, we'll get to it, but the luteal phase potentially deficiency or not enough progesterone where we're starting to get some of that spotting before the actual bleed is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to us a little bit about um, uh, energy during that week. What is normal? Um, and we'll, we can maybe contrast that with what is common, uh, our temperature, uh, during that week. And uh, we'll skip the cervical fluid because we'll get into that. Um, we're not going to be evaluating cervical fluid when, yeah. when we're bleeding. We do that in week two, three and, and four. Yeah. So energy is a really interesting one. And if we, I like to use the analogy of thinking about our energy as in, as if you're depositing it or withdrawing it from a bank account. So if you think about your whole menstrual cycle, you want to be judicious about your energy. This is the time where your naturally is go- energy is naturally going to be at its lowest point, but that doesn't mean that you're, go- you're supposed to be exhausted and you know, struggling to live your normal life. It's a time where you just might be a little bit muted energy wise. You know, you're kind of dialing it down in terms of um, your exercise, really listening to your body. Maybe, you know, you can do your, your typical your typical exercise classes, but you're not having high expectations for yourself. It's really a time where you're tuning in, you're slowing down and you're giving it your body what it needs because the more you push yourself, the more depleted you you will be. And I see this actually with women who, you know, they love that that mid-cycle energy peak and they push and they push and they push. But then when it comes to their and at the end of their menstrual cycle and then their period, they've got nothing left in the tank because it's just they're not kind of make they're making lots of withdrawals on their energy bank account i'm not sure about this analogy um, they're not you know making any enough deposit so this is the time where we can slow down and really kind of replenish and restore and look look inward 
All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 